This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode features discussions of medical procedures in human anatomy that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Bob Champion was used to hospitals. Every successful horse jockey was. From concussions to broken bones to dislocated joints, Bob had seen it all. Or so he thought. But this visit in August 1979 was different from all the others. Physically, Bob felt fine. But as he sat in the doctor's office, he felt an unfamiliar emotion, terror. Bob's heart thudded in his chest as the doctor's words washed over him, barely registering in his mind. He couldn't believe this was happening to him. He was only 31 years old, one of the top jump jockeys in all of Great Britain and at the peak of physical fitness. Surely the test results had been wrong. But they weren't. Bob had stage three testicular cancer and it had already spread to his chest. The doctors told him he had a choice to make and he had to make it soon. Otherwise, he'd be dead before Christmas. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible, true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on Bob Champion, an elite jump racing jockey who was diagnosed with testicular cancer in the summer of 1979. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. As a professional horse racing jockey, Bob Champion was all too familiar with the concept of long odds. 
Sure, you could make a lot of money if a long-shot horse somehow crossed the finish line first, but more often than not, you ended up losing everything. When he was diagnosed with stage 3 testicular cancer in August 1979, Bob knew the chances of him beating this disease were slim, but he'd beaten long odds before and was determined to do it again. As Irma takes us through Bob's inspiring fight against cancer, I'll provide insight into the strategies, both physical and mental, that Bob relied on in order to emerge victorious. From practically the moment he could walk, Bob Champion lived on the back of a horse. His father, Bob Sr., was a seventh-generation professional huntsman in Yorkshire. Horse riding was in the family's blood, and young Bob was no exception. The first time he jumped a horse was in 1952, when Bob was only four years old. Growing up, Bob, his sister Mary, and his best friend Derek would follow Bob Sr. on his fox hunts, jumping their horses over fences, streams, and other obstacles as the hunters pursued their prey through the countryside. Although Bob enjoyed hunting, his dream was to become a professional jump racing jockey. Also commonly referred to as steeplechase, jump racing requires jockeys to jump their horses over obstacles like fences, hedges, and streams as they run along the track. Bob's upbringing helped turn him into a skilled jump jockey, and he competed in his first race in February 1964 when he was 15 years old. It was an inauspicious start, when Bob jumped his horse over the course's last fence, the horse didn't quite clear it, and Bob hit the ground hard. But Bob was undaunted. A month later, he won the second race he ever competed in. It was just a local race with no prize money and only a handful of spectators. But for Bob, it didn't matter what the prize was or how many people saw him do it. All that mattered was that he had won. Bob quickly rose through the amateur circuit, and just before his 20th birthday in May 1968, he was granted his professional license. In Bob's first season, he won a respectable 15 races. But he had his first real taste of success in his third year as a pro, when he placed sixth in the 1970 Grand National Race. One of the most famous horse races in the entire world the Grand National is similar to the Kentucky Derby in terms of stature. With a field of 40 horses galloping over 4.3 miles and leaping over 30 fences, it draws a massive audience from all over the world. Placing sixth was a huge accomplishment, and Bob's growing success caught the eye of Josh Gifford, one of the best trainers in all of Great Britain. In horse racing, the horse's owners entrust their animals to trainers such as Gifford, who in turn hire out jockeys to race for their team. Being on Josh Gifford's roster was a huge honor and helped boost Bob's career to new heights. But success didn't come easily for Bob. He had a larger frame than most jockeys and constantly struggled to make sure he was light enough to race. In racing, each horse is required to carry a minimum amount of weight in relation to its handicap. 
In order to smooth out odds, the more successful horses must carry more weight, and less successful horses can carry less weight. Although the extra weight can exceed the minimum limit, there is an obvious advantage to being as light as possible, especially in jump racing. Even with the heavier weight limits for more successful horses, it was difficult for Bob to get light enough for his races. In addition to being naturally heavier, he didn't maintain the most disciplined diet. Instead, he spent an inordinate amount of time in saunas to sweat out water weight, and often resorted to taking laxatives and diuretic pills in order to shed the pounds. According to the Mayo Clinic, when used improperly, diuretics can have dangerous side effects such as dizziness, headaches, dehydration, muscle cramps, and joint disorders. But Bob wasn't thinking about his long-term health. He was thinking about winning. And he won. A lot. By the 1975-1976 season, Bob was hovering around the top three riders in the Jockey Championship's rankings. Although a win at the Grand National had yet to come, he was racking up victory after victory. One of his favorite horses to ride was a feisty colt named Aldeniti. The first time Bob raced on Aldeniti in January 1975, he immediately developed a close bond with this headstrong horse, and he looked forward to racing with him again soon. Unfortunately, shortly after that first race together, Aldeniti suffered a severe strain to the tendon in his right front leg. Although Aldeniti would be out of action for the next 13 months, he got off lucky. If the leg had been broken, he would surely have been euthanized. While it may seem cruel, horses are often put down after leg breaks because it's incredibly difficult for that injury to heal properly, and it can cause a horse unmanageable pain for the rest of its life. Amputating the leg isn't really an option either, as it severely diminishes the horse's quality of life. Fortunately for Aldeniti, he was able to fully recover, and he and Bob quickly returned to their winning ways. After winning a race in November 1977, Bob promised his trainer, Josh Gifford, that he and Aldeniti would win the Grand National someday. But just as Aldeniti was beginning to truly round into form, he suffered another setback. During a race in late November 1977, Aldeniti chipped two pieces of bone from the pastern in his right rear leg. As the bone that connects the hoof to the rest of the leg, the pastern serves as a sort of shock absorber and is critical to a horse's stride. In order to have any chance at recovery, Aldeniti was confined to complete rest in his stable from December 1977 through July 1978. In March 1979, Bob finally reunited with Aldeniti at the Cheltenham Gold Cup, one of the most prestigious events in the jump racing circuit. At 40 to 1 odds, Bob and Aldeniti were hardly favorites to win, but the race was held in the midst of a spring snowstorm, and the adverse conditions helped even the field. Although he fell short of victory, Bob finished in a more than respectable third place. But as the end of the season approached, a health scare threatened to derail the momentum he and Aldeniti were building. A few weeks after the Cheltenham Gold Cup, 
Bob noticed small lumps under his nipples. When he went to the doctor, he told Bob the lumps would probably go away if he shed a few pounds. After a few sessions in the sauna, the lumps disappeared. But if they returned, the doctor told Bob to come see him immediately. These lumps were most likely the result of a condition called gynecomastia, which is marked by enlargement or swelling of male breast tissue. Although gynecomastia can signal serious diseases such as cancer, it usually occurs from a natural hormone imbalance during puberty or middle age. While the condition would be uncommon for a man of Bob's age, his questionable health regimen could have caused the lumps to form. But if his doctor wasn't concerned, Bob figured he shouldn't be either. Once the lumps disappeared, Bob didn't give them a second thought. Bob and Aldeniti closed out the season in fine form. As the summer break approached, Bob was certain the next season would be his finest. With the run of form he and Aldeniti were on, he thought that victory at the Grand National was finally in reach. Before going on vacation, Bob took part in one last race on May 11, 1979. Racing on a horse called Fury Boy, Bob was cruising with a lead of over 30 lengths, but at the very last hurdle, Fury Boy faltered and Bob fell to the ground. As Bob picked himself up, he realized his lead was so big that he could still win if he quickly remounted. Throwing caution to the wind, he grabbed at Fury Boy. But the horse lived up to his name. Startled by the sudden movement, Fury Boy kicked out his hind legs, solidly connecting with Bob's groin. Somehow, Bob managed to fight through the pain and get back in the saddle. Hanging on for dear life, he and Fury Boy crossed the finish line in first place. It was Bob's 355th career win. He didn't realize it might be his last. In the first few days after the race, Bob wasn't surprised that one of his testicles was swollen. What concerned him more was that it had gone numb. However, he figured the sensation would come back soon enough and set off for a vacation in the U.S., where he competed in a few races as well. But by July 1979, Bob's testicle was still numb. He finally accepted that Fury Boy might have caused him some real damage and asked a veterinarian he was dating to take a look at it. Although the vet wasn't qualified to make a diagnosis, she could tell something was clearly wrong. She told Bob he needed to return to the UK immediately and see his doctor. Bob heeded her advice and flew back to England at once. Upon seeing the doctor, he received bad news. There was a tumor on his testicle. In order to determine if it was cancerous or benign, Bob's doctor told him he'd require an exploratory surgery. If it was cancerous, time would be of the essence. The surgery was scheduled for the next day. Bob was in a daze. If the doctors thought more tests needed to be run, they might have to remove the testicle completely. When he got back to his hotel room, the severity of the situation came crashing down on him all at once. If it was cancer, the thought of going through treatment terrified him. He thought his life was over. Bob wandered over to the window, which overlooked London from 16 stories up. 
He opened it and looked down. Bob's suicidal thoughts in the face of a potential cancer diagnosis weren't uncommon. Dr. Donald Rosenstein of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has estimated that as many as one in 10 cancer patients will indicate suicidal thoughts. But the reality of seeing just how far the fall from his window would be chased the idea from Bob's head. Although he was still in a dark state of mind, a long talk with his childhood friend Derek helped him process the storm of emotions that had overcome him. The next morning, Bob underwent the exploratory surgery. In the end, the doctors determined that more tests would have to be run on his testicle, and they removed it. Thirteen days later, the results came in. The tumor had been malignant. Making matters worse, there was a shadow on his chest x-rays. Bob had stage 3 testicular cancer, and it had spread to his chest. If he didn't start treatment immediately, he'd be dead within months. Coming up, Bob embarks on his fight against cancer. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. As Bob Champion sat in his doctor's office on August 11, 1979, he tried to process what she was telling him. The thought that he could have stage 3 testicular cancer was unfathomable. Cancer diagnoses are typically divided between four stages, with one being the most easily treatable. Since Bob's cancer was already at stage 3, that meant it had passed into other tissues, which in his case was his chest. If Bob was going to beat this disease, he'd have to go through a new form of chemotherapy that had recently been pioneered in the United States. If it was successful, the lasting damage it would have on his body probably meant Bob could never race professionally again. The thought of never racing again was too much for him to bear. He told his doctors he'd rather die in the saddle than in a hospital bed. Bob's doctor was shocked. She tried to frame it in a way that would resonate more with him. She asked Bob if he would bet on six to four odds in a horse race. Bob reasoned that was about a 35 to 40 percent chance. He'd probably take it. As he took the weekend to think about it, Bob decided he'd need an end goal to focus on if he was going to undergo treatment. He figured it should be the same goal he was pursuing before his diagnosis. He was going to win the Grand National, and he was going to do it while riding his favorite horse, Aldeniti. According to Lauren Garvey, a cancer wellness counselor at the Piedmont Health Center, goal setting helps us be present and move forward. A forward mindset and positivity are very important, especially during cancer treatment. Whatever a patient's particular goal may be, it can be a huge boost in combating depression and giving hope in a bleak situation. And while Bob's odds of surviving his treatment were decent, 
There was still less than a one in two chance that he'd survive. He knew he would need all the positive energy he could muster. His treatment would involve four different rounds of chemotherapy, each one consisting of seven days in the hospital and 14 days at home. Once a cycle was done, the next one would begin immediately. Every day that went by was a chance for Bob's cancer to spread, so treatment began immediately on August 14, 1979. The first step was to install a cannula, which was a permanent hollow fitting in Bob's arm that made it easier to connect IV drips without having to stick a needle in him every time he was given the treatment. At 10 a.m. on Bob's first morning in the hospital, he was given his first dose of chemotherapy, which involved an injection of liquid platinum. Chemotherapy is a delicate balancing act. The goal was to give Bob enough of this highly toxic treatment to kill the cancer cells without killing him in the process. The platinum smell was intensely metallic. It was so strong that Bob could practically taste it in the back of his throat. It made him so nauseous that when it was time for lunch, he couldn't eat a single bite. By the second day of treatment, the chemo's other side effect began to kick in, and Bob threw up for the first time. Just two days before, he had been a strong, healthy 31-year-old man, and now he was violently vomiting in a hospital bed. The fear Bob had felt about his cancer became accompanied by another emotion, anger. According to the National Cancer Institute, anger is one of the most common emotions felt by cancer patients. It can be extremely destructive to a patient's morale, and Bob was no exception. He was sick, he was afraid, and he was beginning to realize he might not survive. By the fifth day, Bob began to experience another painful side effect, constipation. This was far more than a typical annoyance. He went 17 days without being able to pass a bowel movement. After Bob's sixth day in the hospital, it was finally time for him to go home and rest for the next two weeks. Being able to sleep in his own bed was a huge relief. But just a few hours into his first night at home, he began to feel incredibly sick. He was drenched in sweat, suffering from stomach cramps and vomiting almost nonstop. It was the worst pain he'd felt in his entire life. By 5 a.m., Bob realized he wouldn't be able to stay at home by himself. He called his sister Mary, and she brought him to her farmhouse so he could stay in the spare room. Ever since they were children, Bob and Mary shared an incredibly close bond. An accomplished jockey herself, Mary was Bob's biggest supporter and his biggest critic. She was capable of providing him comfort and tough love in equal measure, both of which helped Bob fight his disease. When he arrived at Mary's house, Bob was in agony. The doctors had given him medicine to help alleviate his constipation, but it wasn't working. In a moment of desperation, Bob tried taking one of the laxatives he used to cut weight before a race. It was a huge mistake. He was beset with even more severe stomach cramps on top of the pain he was already feeling. With no way to process the bits of food he was able to eat, 
it would come straight back up after only a few minutes. The 17th day after Bob started his treatment was one of ups and downs. Although he was finally able to relieve his constipation, when he woke up that morning, he discovered large tufts of hair on his pillow. He was starting to go bald. According to the Cancer.net editorial board, for many people, hair loss from cancer treatment is more than just a change in physical appearance. Losing your hair can be an emotionally challenging experience that affects your self-image and quality of life. Bob was not immune to these feelings. It made him feel like a shadow of himself and made his sickness feel like even more of a reality. But within this moment of despair came an unexpected source of strength. Just before he was due to return to the hospital for his second round of chemo, Bob found out that there were rumors circulating that he had died. To set the record straight, Bob gathered what little strength he had and made an appearance at Josh Gifford's training yard. Seeing the look of happiness on his friends' faces helped Bob remember how much they cared about him. Josh promised him that when Bob beat his cancer, he would still have a place on the team. No matter what happened, his coveted position wasn't going to be replaced. Heading into his second round of chemo on September 3, 1979, Bob felt full of purpose. He was more determined than ever to achieve his vision of riding Aldeniti to victory at the Grand National. The first order of business was to fully commit to his hair loss. Aided by one of his nurses, Bob shaved his head and face. Although he had been rapidly losing his hair, looking into the mirror completely bald was shocking. The man staring back at him wasn't Bob Champion, famous horse jockey. It was a cancer patient. To help with his image issues, the National Health Service provided him with several wigs. For Bob, as for many other cancer patients, it helped him retain a sense of inner dignity and peace. It turned out Bob would need every bit of inner strength he had to get through this round of chemo. His doctors warned him that it would be even worse than the first session, and they were right. Almost immediately, Bob began to suffer from near constant vomiting. He would throw up 10 to 12 times every hour. This was much more severe than most cancer patients, but his doctor had no idea how to mitigate it. His form of treatment was still extremely new, and even the doctors were still learning about it. After a few days, the resolve Bob had felt going in had nearly vanished. To feel some semblance of control, he started forcing himself to take short walks to the convenience store next to the hospital. He would buy a small tin of rice pudding as a reward. Rice pudding was one of the few things Bob could bring himself to stomach. Another source of strength was the love and support he got from his friends and family. In addition to Bob's mother and his sister Mary, Josh Gifford was one of his most frequent visitors. Bob knew he was a grim sight, but his visitors always put on a brave, positive attitude when they came to see him. He needed all the support he could get. Bob was suffering from every possible side effect from the chemotherapy. Nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, bone marrow depression, numbness in his extremities, constipation, cramping, and mouth ulcers. 
After six trying days in the hospital, Bob was once again ready to go home. This time, he knew better than to try to stay at his house alone. He went straight to Mary's farmhouse. It took him a whole week of bed rest before he felt strong enough to spend any time with Mary and her family. During this period of recuperation, Bob received some great news. Aldeniti had returned to training and was back on track to begin racing in November. Bob vowed that he'd be in the grandstand when Aldeniti returned to the track. He was disappointed he wouldn't be the one riding Aldeniti, but he told himself they'd be together for the Grand National once he had beaten his cancer. But before he could think about getting back on a horse, Bob had two more rounds of chemo to get through, and they would push his body to its very limit. Coming up, Bob faces his own mortality. And now, back to the story. Having completed two rounds of chemotherapy, Bob Champion returned to the hospital for his third week-long stay on September 24, 1979. Having crossed the halfway point of his treatment, he was growing more concerned about his ability to return to horse racing once his chemotherapy had run its course. Unfortunately, Bob's doctors weren't optimistic about his chances. Although the chemo was successfully battling the cancer, the incidental damage meant his lungs would probably lose about a third of their capacity. For an average person, this damage wouldn't be life-altering, but for an athlete like Bob, it would probably prevent him from competing. When it was time to return to Mary's farmhouse on September 29th, Bob paid little attention to the doctor's warnings about being careful not to push his weakened immune system too hard. It turned out to be a huge mistake. On the morning of October 7th, Bob woke up feeling a little worse than usual. He was even more exhausted than he normally was and had developed mouth sores overnight. He was going to spend the day in bed, but when Mary's cows all escaped from their pen, Bob got out of bed and tried to help. In his feeble state, Bob was more of a hindrance than a help, and he quickly returned to the farmhouse. But the effort had pushed him over the edge. He was drenched in sweat and shivering uncontrollably. When Mary took his temperature, it was 102 degrees. Mary quickly called the doctor, who told Bob he had to get to the hospital immediately, but there was nobody to take him. Mary didn't drive, and her husband Richard was still out in the fields rounding up the escaped cattle. By the time Richard finally got back from the fields, Bob was drifting in and out of consciousness. As Richard and Mary helped carry him to the car, Bob asked his sister if he was going to die. Keeping a stiff upper lip, she told Bob, don't be silly, only the good die young. But as the car disappeared around the bend, Mary broke down. She was positive it was the last time she would ever speak to her brother. Although Bob's normal hospital was over 100 miles away, his doctors thought it was vital for him to be in their care. Normally a very reserved driver, Richard drove like a madman to get Bob there as fast as possible. When they finally arrived, Bob had a fever of 105 degrees. 
Normal body temperature is 98.6. Anything above 103 degrees is considered to be a high-grade fever and extremely dangerous. By this point, Bob's life was on the line. It turned out he was suffering from septicemia, or blood poisoning. One of the side effects of his medicine gave Bob an extremely low white blood cell count, and an infection was spreading through his bloodstream. In 1979, blood poisoning killed 2% of all cancer patients, and there was a significant chance Bob would become one of them. After Bob's doctors pumped him full of antibiotics and gave him a blood transfusion, the only thing they could do was wait and see if the treatments worked. That night, Bob felt at peace. He knew he might die, but he had passed the point of fearing death. At that point, he just wanted his suffering to end. He relished the thought of simply letting go and drifting away. But when morning came, Bob was still alive. He had pulled through, although it had been extremely touch and go. His nurses told him that had he arrived 20 minutes later, he probably wouldn't have made it. However, Bob wasn't out of the woods yet. He still had another session of chemo to get through. After recuperating at Mary's for the next 10 days, Bob returned to the hospital for his final round of chemotherapy on October 17, 1979. Having made it through the harrowing blood poisoning experience, he was ready to take on any challenge that came his way. But it wouldn't be easy. The first three rounds had battered his body, and even though Bob knew what to expect, this final stay in the hospital was the worst one yet. Unable to eat and suffering from constant vomiting, Bob experienced horrible cramps. His skin reeked of the metallic smell from his platinum treatments, and his body was unbearably sore. Through it all, Bob kept visualizing himself in the winner's circle at the Grand National, triumphantly astride Aldeniti. More than anything, it was this mental picture that got him through the pain and suffering. Bob went home on October 22, 1979, ready to embark on the long road to recovery. After the week or so that it took to fight off the side effects from the chemotherapy, he quickly began to regain his strength. By November 15th, he achieved a huge milestone when he got back on a horse for the first time. With Mary's family looking on, Bob climbed onto his niece's horse, a gentle pony named Henry. Bob's doctors had warned him not to push himself too hard, but once he was astride Henry's back, he couldn't help showing off just a little. They started off at a walk, then a trot, then a canter. There were a few small logs scattered around the yard. Naturally, Bob had Henry jump them. After a few minutes, Bob was exhausted, but the sight of Mary and her family smiling up at him as he took Henry around the yard gave him strength beyond measure. The rest of Bob's life was getting back on track as well. He started attending some races, and in a televised interview with the BBC, he boldly claimed that he would be riding in the 1980 Grand National in April. With each passing day, 
Bob felt stronger and stronger. In late November, Bob headed into his first reassessment brimming with confidence. His doctor informed him that his chest tumor was gone and that the treatment had been incredibly successful. Unfortunately, there was a but. Apparently, there were still a few cancerous cells in the tissue surrounding where the tumor had been. While they could easily be eradicated with a fairly straightforward radiation treatment, Bob's lungs would be damaged even more than they had already been. There would be almost zero chance of him ever racing again. The doctor knew how desperate Bob was to resume his racing career, so she presented him with a second riskier option. He could go through another two rounds of chemotherapy. Bob's world fell away from him. Just moments before, he was overflowing with happiness. Now, he felt completely empty. But he was damned if he was going to give up his dream now. He knew that another two rounds of chemo could push his already frail body past its breaking point. And if he did make it through, there was no way he'd be able to recover in time for the 1980 Grand National. But there would be another one the next year. Bob promised himself he'd be there. Coincidentally, Bob's reassessment was the day before Aldeniti was scheduled to make his return to the racetrack. Luckily, he had a few days before his next round of treatment began. But even if he had been due at the hospital, he wouldn't have missed Aldeniti's return for anything. Bob lost himself in the thrill of the race, enjoying the experience of being a spectator, cheering on his favorite horse. Aldeniti wasn't in contention to win, but it didn't matter. Bob was just happy to see him running. But as Aldeniti galloped into the final stretch, tragedy struck. Only meters from the finish line, Aldeniti pulled up lame limping on the same leg that he had injured before. It was an unmitigated disaster. Although Aldeniti's leg wasn't broken, he had injured his tendons severely enough for the veterinarian to recommend for him to be put down. But Aldeniti's owners remembered the confidence Bob had placed in him. They decided to confine him again to complete rest in the hopes that he might recover. Bob and Aldeniti were now both on their last chance. Bob's fifth round of chemotherapy began on December 3, 1979. Even though Bob knew what to expect at this point, his battered body could hardly stand the treatment. His veins had been so badly damaged from the previous four rounds that just inserting the cannula for his IV treatments was a gargantuan task. The dry heaving from his endless vomiting was so painful that Bob had to force himself to take tiny sips of tea just so he could have something to throw up. The pain was so severe that it was beginning to overwhelm his desire to fight. The mental image of him and Aldeniti in the Grand National Winner's Circle was fading. Even that dream couldn't dig him out of the dark hole of despair, his pain, had made him fall into. Bob's loved ones tried to convince him not to lose hope, but the ceaseless pain, endless IV drips, and the sickening smell of the platinum treatments were more than he could bear. 
Even if he did somehow pull through, Bob's nurses confided that it was highly unlikely that he'd ever have the lung capacity to race again. The thought of returning to the racetrack had been Bob's guiding light. Without it, he couldn't summon the strength to keep fighting. On his fourth day in the hospital, Bob summoned the cancer ward's head nurse. He told her he wanted to end his treatment. He was ready to die. He had fought as hard as he could, but he had nothing left to give. The cancer had won. Thanks for listening to Survival. Tune in next week as Bob grapples to decide if he wants to keep fighting until the bitter end. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bob's memoir, I'm Champion, Call Me Bob, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Survival is written by Alex Benedin and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. Survival.